Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Brick Podcast. I'm Joe Thomas. I'm here with my good buddy, Gary Hall. We are missing Byron Jabara today. As we speak, he is storming Area 51. We wish him the best of luck. Gary, how you doing, brother? You know, I'm doing great. And like you said, this is probably going to be the best show ever uh, with Byron not on the show um, today. And uh, uh, today's interview, Joe, is going to talk to Stephen Kesting. And what I just thought was crazy is, Right as I said that, uh, I'm working off of my surface right now. I got an email from Stephen Kesting, back to school sale, 35 to 55% off all BJJ instructionals. So I think Stephen knows that uh, we're going to be talking about his interview today, and that's why I got the email. Um, Joe? Yeah, that's awesome. So those deals may be gone by the time this airs, but man, if you haven't checked out Stefan's instructionals and, and some of the material he's got out there, you need to do yourself a favor and do it. Uh, I've gained a lot from the material he puts out, so good. And you know, you talked about Byron not being here today, and, and like I said, it's probably going to be the best show ever, uh, but as you said, Byron's uh, you know on his way to Area 51 to storm that, and the good thing is Byron's really been uh, been practicing, been working to get ready to storm Area 51. You know, he's been shrimping, he's been practicing guard pulls, um, all that stuff, barambolas, so I personally think he's ready. What about you, Joe? Yeah, I think he is too. You know, I hope he doesn't get probed again. He's still whining and crying about the last time he got probed by aliens. So uh, let's hope that that does not happen this time. It all goes well. So yeah, I actually don't think he was crying and whining about it. I think he was looking forward to it, uh, Joe. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So turn turn turns out he he enjoyed the experience. So that's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you really liked it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Byron, he's he's got that mind. Byron's always working on stuff. And when he gets done uh, being probed in Storm in Area 51, he's probably going to come out with an audio book. And if you guys haven't seen either of his audio books, he's got two audio books. One is your first year in BJJ. And that's for somebody who hasn't been training that long. Um, kind of walk you through the pitfalls and the hurdles that you're going to face in your first year of jiu-jitsu and, um, you know, definitely help make that year easier so you'll stick with it. Um, it's two and a half hours of content, only $11.99. And like you, uh, like I said earlier, we do have a link to it on our show notes. And uh, he also has a second uh, audio book, uh, uh, six games for BJJ. Um, and as a, uh, I know we've talked about it numerous times, and, and this is for a little bit higher level. And, and it's uh, team building, uh, you know, really helps you have fun. You know, we've talked about the Nike method um, and Ragdoll. I know Byron talks about that a lot. And, uh, you know, Joe and I uh, uh, have used it, too. And, and, Joe, what's your favorite one? You know, I, I've used a lot the uh, left-handed grappler. And if you're left-handed, it would be the opposite. But, you know, kind of going to my weak side, I've used that one a lot. And uh, I've used uh, the just do it method quite a bit. Um, I'm one that tends to kind of get... Uh, defensive and not go for submissions as much as i should and every now and then i gotta break that game out to get myself back on track yeah I, i'm the same way i use the right-handed grappler because i'm left-handed and it's all and then it's me it helps my training partner because they're normally used to defending one way um and uh you know what i like you said about the just do it method 
And that kind of reminds me of one of my favorite uh, people, Walt Disney. Everybody loves going to Disney World or Disneyland. But Walt Disney once said, the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. Um, it just reminded me when you said just do it. But, um, you know, we talk about this all the time. Um, you know, I talk about the first time I did, did jujitsu. I had been wanting to do it. I had been talking about it. Um, and I didn't just do it. I, I draw this. I was, um, you know, I'd been talking the game, but I didn't pull into the parking lot. And, you know, today I had a guy come and train for the first time this morning with me. And we have been talking about training for about a year and a half, two years. Um, he, you know, had interest in it. And as usual, anybody who has interest in jujitsu, I'm going to talk about it and try to get him to come. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of stuff going on and, and never had, you know, stepped on the mats. But uh, yesterday I got a call out of the blue from him and uh, you could tell he was interested in trying jujitsu. So I invited him down today and, uh, you know, he quit talking about it. He doing it and uh great time and uh hopefully uh he'll keep doing it and we'll have uh, another jujitsu person here in wichita kansas yeah that's awesome man i love to hear about uh new new guys coming on the mat new students joining the gym that's a great quote it, it's applicable at many points in your journey though not just when you're starting you know there's a lot of people that their coach will maybe drop a hint or offer them an opportunity that maybe they could start teaching a class or, or helping out. And, and sometimes people are nervous about that and they'll, you know, kind of tell the coach, I'm not quite ready, but when I am and, and they'll hesitate for a long time. If you're in that position, just do it. If you've been, um, thinking about doing a tournament and you kind of keep every time one comes up, you're like, oh, I'll get the next one. I'll get the next one. Sometimes you just need to quit thinking about it, quit planning and just do it. So great quote, Gary. Yep, and you know, like you said, it's not—it's applicable in life too. Uh, you know, you're—you're kind of sick of your job, sick of your boss, but you know, maybe you're afraid to leave your company, and and you know, I know a lot of people like that, but I also have met a lot of people who just did it. Uh, you know, stopped talking about leaving their mean boss, and uh, you know, took another job, and I talked to them a couple weeks later, and they tell me it's the best move they made. So a lot of times, we just have to. Uh, you know, get over that fear, um, you know, and try it. It reminds me back to a life lesson we talked about a couple of weeks ago about the uh, uh, kayaking. You know, a lot of people didn't really, you know, want to do it. They were scared of doing it. And, and I got to admit, I was scared the first time I went and uh, I didn't know if I could do it or not. And as you guys know, I had one of the best times I had in a long time. So uh, uh, let's just do it. Yep. And speaking of kayaking, you know, Stefan Kesting went on a thousand mile solo canoe trip. And you think about all the people that talk about doing like a 24 hour rollathon or a, a walk across the state of Texas or a thousand mile canoe trip. A lot of people talk about that. They plan, they dream about it. And, uh, sometimes you just got to quit, quit dreaming and planning and do it. So let's roll our interview with Stefan Kesting. I think you guys are going to like this. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. Ronda Rousey's mom taught him a few judo throws in exchange for some armbar tips. In the finals of his most recent tournament, he was stuck in a triangle. He managed to take a selfie and post it on Facebook before escaping. He can call an IBJJF referee anytime, day or night, to find out what condition his condition is in. Dropped in. 
See what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. I push my soul. Stay sweaty, my friends. Okay, I'd like to welcome Stefan Kesting to the BJJ Brick Podcast. He's been a guest before. Uh, we're glad to have him back on. Uh, Stefan, uh, you're well known in the community, but I think our podcast caters a little bit to people new to jujitsu. So, in case there are people who are not real familiar with you, can you just give us a brief intro? Of course, of course. Uh, I'm 50 years old. I've been doing martial arts since I was 12. I started in judo, and that was at a time when I couldn't, I couldn't convince my parents to let me do ninjutsu. Because ninjutsu was the big craze then, and, and kung fu, and my mom was pretty sure she didn't want me to be a professional killer, although I, I was fairly certain that that was a good career choice. So I did judo, which was a blessing in disguise, because, of course, jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu comes from judo, which came from Japanese jiu-jitsu. So anytime you get on the mats, anytime you get making grips with people, trying to throw them, trying to bend them into pretzels, trying to pin them on the ground, is good training. You know, it doesn't matter if you're doing catch wrestling or sambo or judo or, you know, or, or you don't know what you're doing and you're rolling around on the ground with people, it's still good training. It could probably be better if you had more direction, if you had more input, if you had more feedback, but it's still good training. You're still training your body to become sensitive to the movements of somebody else. You're desensitizing yourself to being crushed and then as i got older i i strayed from the path i went down you know did lots of traditional kung fu training because of course that's where it was at and then became dissatisfied with that over the years drifted more into applied martial arts uh, jun fan jkd thai boxing uh, kajukambo got my black belt in that a very full contact system of Kempo really um, came back. And then the the UFC craze hit. Actually, first the Gracie in action craze hit. That's what a lot of people don't. Everyone tracks their jujitsu heritage back to UFC one. I track mine back to the Gracie in action tapes coming out, which was a cherry picked bunch of matches from Brazil by the Gracie family, but still show the devastating effectiveness of getting really close to somebody who's trying to hit you in the head taking them to the ground, getting an amount, hitting them a few times, and then choking them out when they give you your back. Now, how did Seeing this happen again and again and again is a wake-up call that maybe all this striking training that I was doing in lieu or in the absence of any grappling was leaving me with a great big gaping hole in my training. So how did you get a hold of the those tapes? Were, were they hard to get back in the day? They were expensive to get back in the day. I was a student at the time. So a guy came to train at our club in Montreal. I, I was training uh, with Philip Gelina in Kajakambo in Montreal. And a guy came to visit. And somehow he had one of these tapes. Yeah, I think he had Gracie in Action 1. And, uh, of course, this is just a conversation between you and me. And Hori and Gracie isn't listening. <laughs> uh, if he is a subscriber, I'm going to stop talking right now. Uh, I made a copy of it. And and just watched that tape easily 50 times. And then, so from Gracie in Action 1, my training partners and I got the idea that it was better to be on top 
than on bottom. And that sitting on someone's chest, the mount, was a pretty good idea. And that if you didn't know how to fight on the ground, you were hooped. From Gracie in Action 2, I believe that's the one where the Hickson versus Zulu fight was on, we got the idea that if you had to be on the bottom, that wrapping your legs around somebody and closing your ankles and not kind of holding onto their head and their arms was a good idea. Translation, the closed guard. And we started replicating this as best as we could and sparring full con. I mean, this is, we'd be sparring with slaps, with hair pull. You know, at the time I had the great big head of hair and long curly hair down past my shoulders. And I'd come home from training and I would wash my hair and just there'd be clumps of hair. It was like a giant cat had vomited hairballs into my bathtub just coming out of my head because the guys have been trying to, you know, get me off of them by pulling my ponytail or, or just grabbing the top of my head. We were also trying to bend fingers around. We were kind of meshing traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu techniques that we knew with a little bit of wrestling that we knew with a little bit of judo with this stuff that we had seen in the Gracie and action tapes. And it was a gong show. But again, when I did get more formal training in grappling and jiu-jitsu and judo, I wouldn't trade that base of experience for anything because it was really valuable. And it's also, it, it set a precedent for you to a certain extent, you have to figure stuff out for yourself. Yes, you can have a great instructor, a great instructor, and a great instructor will try to help you. But he's also got 30 or 40 other students and his body or her body works differently from your body. And their methodology, their approach, their psychology, their neurology is all different from yours. So ultimately, bottom line, you are responsible for your improvement. And in the modern day and age, when there are apps out there to show you how to do an armbar, when there's YouTube videos showing you how to do a barambolo, when there's DVDs and online streaming products showing you how to do almost every aspect of jiu-jitsu, there's really no excuse. Right? You can't say... Well, you know, my instructor, he's not really much of a spider guard guy, so I don't know how to pass spider guard. Well, you know, guess what? There's a great site for how to learn to pass spider guard. You know, it's Y-O-U-T-U-B-E dot com. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of crap out there as well. So then in a world of infinite content, context becomes more important. Do you trust the person who's giving you the information? Or is this just some purple belt who awarded himself the purple belt after training for a few months who's now making stuff up and putting it out on YouTube? That's possible as well. So the information isn't so much the issue. It's the filtering of the information. It's the context of the information. Yeah, unfortunately, fortunately now it's really not too hard to weed through some of the BS. Um, you know, you ask your coaches, ask your teammates if, if you're at a school what they recommend, and you, you can always look at the uh, the comments and, and how many views and and uh, test test the uh, the techniques yourself. And it's really not too hard to see who's legitimate and offering good information and who's not. Hey, I want to ask you a real quick question. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but you mentioned you were in JKD. You're 50 years old. Did you ever get to train with or meet any of the original or, you know, some of the old school guys in that lineage? Uh, I've met uh, uh, Taki Wong and I've met, well, I've trained extensively with Danny Nosanto. 
Okay, I thought I thought I'd heard that before. So, how were those training sessions like? Well, I, I've done a variety of like I've done a ton of seminars. I don't live in Los Angeles. I have trained at the academy. I've done camps at the academy, and I've done a ton of seminars. It. it He's an incredibly inspiring person because of his understanding and enthusiasm for the martial arts. Even if you don't do Filipino martial arts, even if you don't have the slightest bit of interest in what Bruce Lee used to do with trapping, even if you don't have an interest in Indonesian silat, the enthusiasm with which this guy in his 70s approaches training and is still active and can still move. It's incredibly inspiring. So that's, that's number one. Number two, I mean, he introduced an entire generation of people to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and to shoot wrestling, more of the Pancras, Shuto, the Japanese approach to early MMA. I mean, there's been a big fusion now. Current Japanese MMA doesn't look that different from current Western MMA, but initially it did. Mm -hmm. In the 90s, it sure did. I mean, the classic match in the 90s was some Brazilian guy you'd never heard of, but, you know, 19-time world champion, against some Japanese guy, and they would clash, and usually the Japanese guy would have better striking, and they'd go to the clinch, and if the Japanese guy ended up on top, he would go for a heel hook, and if he got it, he'd break the, Jap he'd break the Brazilian guy's leg, and if it didn't work, the Brazilian guy would get on top and choke the Japanese guy out. There were so many matches that essentially followed that script with that one big, you know, paradigm or with that one big decision point. Did the heel hook work or did the heel hook not work? It was a very different art. And Danny Nasanto was very central in popularizing it and introducing an entire generation of fighters to Shudo. I don't know if you know Eric Paulson. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but Eric was trained at the academy, trained with Yori Nakamura, who was the resident shoot wrestling instructor, fought in Japan, fought in many of the early MMA events. And so he came up from that lineage and then merged it very much with the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I mean, there, there's not that many secrets anymore. Everything's Everything that works is beginning to merge, right? If you discover, if you and I have a MMA fight tomorrow or a, Brazilian jiu-jitsu match for that matter and you come up with some incredibly cool cartwheeling superman punch or a cartwheeling inverted arm bar against butterfly guard i don't think there is such a thing but let's pretend there is tomorrow somebody else will be watching that and going you know what i should try that so there might be secrets until the first time you do it in public and then it'll be on video and somebody out there will be going, you know what? I should try that. So it, it's a different world now. Yeah. It makes it a better world. Yeah. And chances are somebody was messing with something similar around the same time anyway. So yeah, once, yeah. once it breaks into the collective consciousness, it blows up. Absolutely. Hey, hey I want to ask you, cause you've mentioned content a little bit and most jujitsu practitioners at some point would like to, kind of make their livelihood in jiu-jitsu in some way and more and more uh tutorials instructionals that kind of thing becomes an option for guys 
I want to ask you about grapple arts. I personally have benefited from it greatly, man. Your content, uh, you put out a lot of free content. I've bought some of your content just to give you some money because I feel like I've benefited so much from your free stuff. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Could, could you tell me a little bit about how grapple arts started? Kind of give me an intro into that, a little background. Well, it started a long time ago. It started in 2002, 2003. And it started with... Uh, <laughs> A friend of mine had just got a brand new video camera. It is one of those video cameras where you basically slap a VHS tape onto the side of it and it would record directly from the lens to the VHS tape. And you hold it, you hold it on your shoulder like you're a a media guy or something. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I've been, I'd love to shoot a little video because I've been thinking about different ways to attack the turtle. Right. If you can, I'll even try and describe my idea. At the time, so if you're turtled, I kind of picture six attack zones. So if, if I'm on your left-hand side, there's your left-hand side ahead of your arms, your left-hand side behind your arms, and your left-hand side in front of your legs. And on your right-hand side, the corresponding three areas. And to spend, depending on where you stuck your leg, if you stuck your left leg into zone one, if you stuck your right leg into zone two, if you stuck your left leg into zone three, you'd have different attacks that would come out of it, right? If I jam one leg in there, I can take your back. If I jam the other leg in, I could conceivably do a rolling forward, you know, knee bar, or a forward roll into a knee bar. I could go into a rolling omoplata. I could go into a rolling kimura. I could go to a straight arm lock. And I thought it was a pretty cool idea. So I filmed it on this camera that recorded directly to VHS tape. <laughs> and I made uh, 10 copies of it. I was pretty proud of it. And I sent a copy to Eric Paulson. Just, hey, Eric, you know, check this out. You know, I, I, I think it's kind of cool. And he was like, you should polish this up and sell it. And I was like, well, who would, who would watch it? He's like, dude. And he named a bunch of other people who were producing videotapes. And he goes, you know, you could kick their ass and you're an instructor under me. And I believe I was a jujitsu purple belt at the time. And so he's basically said, go forth. You know, I, I benedict you here. I give you my blessing to, you know, to try and sell this. So I didn't sell that, but I did sell, I did write and edit and ultimately sell Omoplata and the Dynamic Guard, which was a two volume VHS tape when it came out. I think it was like three and a half hours. It took me something like 500 hours to edit that because I had no idea what I was doing. And I was working in a PC, and I kept on crashing, and I lost the entire project one time. And I think I had to film it twice, because the first time I didn't know what I was doing with lighting. And I had it all edited, and my girlfriend came up to me and goes, I can't see anything because of that crappy light. I was like, I had been hoping that this was just a figment of my imagination. And so we went back and filmed it all a second time, and then edited it a second time. So 500 hours of work later, I had it. And people liked it. And people liked the approach to teaching, you know, a little bit more conceptual. And I mean, you got to remember at the time there were, if you won a UFC, you produced an instructional with Panther Productions or World Martial Arts, right? That was just the path. UFC, VHS tape series. And you would produce a VHS tape series and be like 10 to 20 volumes on every topic. So you'd had people who had never successfully defended themselves from the guard, 
and volume eight would be, you know, deadly effective attacks from the guard. And you're like, this is a great fighter. Well, I'll name name. Don Fry. Great fighter. Classic fighter. Terrible guard. Yeah, he, what is he producing? You know, why is volume eight Don Fry's deadly attacks from the guard? May, I mean, maybe he went and patched that hole in his game, but at the time it was a humongous hole. And so I made a vow that I would never teach anything that I wasn't using, that I couldn't vouch for. And, uh, also at the time, you'd, I mean, now really going down memory lane. You'd buy a tape and they'd show maybe eight techniques on the tape. So first they'd show the technique and then they'd show it broken down and they'd show it from a second angle and they'd break it down from the second angle. And then they would show it in slow motion from the first angle and they'd show it in slow motion, like, like 15 minutes of bloody technique. And I was like, no, people got a rewind function. They can just, if they didn't catch it the first time and they didn't catch it in the additional details the second time, they can go back and watch it again. And, and you see the format of most YouTube videos and it's, it does take for granted the fact that people can rewind and rewatch if they have to. So the, the pedagogy, the teaching method around online instruction has hugely improved, right? The stuff that people were getting away with in the 90s and charging giant dollars for just would never fly anymore. Yeah, if you do enough of uh, re-showing the same technique in slow motion and from different angles, you, you can get away with putting out two, three hours worth of material and really not having that much content in it. So, Which is not to say that occasional judicious use of slow motion isn't a fantastic tool. Like if you're really going into detail on a complicated move, fine. But just to, I mean, I remember one Panther, I think it was Panther production of a capoeira tape. Cause at the time I was interested in capoeira. I did some capoeira. They showed like 10 techniques. You know, the guy would show the move and with a couple of details and then they'd show it in slow motion. And that went on for 30 minutes. And at the 30 minute mark, he goes, okay, now we review again. And they just started the entire tape again. Like, hey, you know how we'll fill an hour? We'll put the same 30 minutes twice. They didn't even shoot it a second time. <laughs> and, uh, so that, that, I think, was the nadir of instructional videos. That, that's pretty clever. So yeah. you, you mentioned not uh, recording anything or putting anything out that uh, wasn't a part of your game or something you were familiar with or you know really proficient at. And... I think you found a, a clever workaround with that, and I really appreciate it, in that you've had a ton of uh, collaborations, um, two that stand out to me, and I, I think they were part of the same series. I think it was defeating the bigger and stronger opponent with Emily and Brandon Mullins. Yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to ask you, do you usually like see somebody out there that you admire, that you, you think they have a lot of potential? You, you see something in them and you invite them on and say, Hey, what do you want to do? Or do you come up with an idea and look for somebody that can complement what you're wanting to do with that idea? Mostly the first, a little bit of the second. Okay. I mean, most people are known for something and you'd be a fool to not, I mean, say I was to work with Keenan Cornelius. He's known for a ton of things. He's not known for his leg locking. Right. I'm not saying he can't leg lock. He's probably a great leg locker, but he's not known for it. So, you know, I, the obvious thing to shoot with him, again, and uh, he's got a ton of it on his site, would be something about the worm guard, something about the guard, something about, you know, crazy use of the lapel, something he's known for. 
So that's one constraint or one push in one direction. I think working collaboratively is is a really good way around the limitations. I mean, I do occasionally show things that I should be clarified. I do occasionally show things that I don't use, but I try to make it clear. I don't use this. However, I've seen other people do this or it's been done to me. So I think if you can provide some context around it, you can get away with a little bit of that. But but mostly people want to see what you can vouch for. I yeah. want to say that working with Emily Kwok and Brandon Mullins on those two instructionals, that was really useful. And the interesting thing is that even I mean, I'm reasonably big. I sort of fluctuate. I'm, right now I'm down to about 206 because I just got back from <laughs> yeah. uh, 50 days in the Arctic. You burned a few calories, did you? Yeah, a few calories. <laughs> I, I lost a few pounds. Let's say somewhere between 206 and 218. So I'm reasonably big. But two insights. Number one, even big guys are worried about big guys because and I, I know the, the 125 pounders um, among your listenership are rolling their eyes right now. But when a 240-pound guy shows up, that's when the 215-pounders go, oh, crap, I'm used to being the big guy. Now, of course, the 125-pounders have to deal with this all the time, so they have no sympathy for it. And secondly, you know, more of the time, big guys can learn from little guys more so than little guys can learn from big guys. I'm not saying that the reverse is impossible, but Little guys have to be technical. There's just no way around it. They have to really pay attention to where they put their foot. What do they do when this move fails? If they try, if they go for their first guard pass and the guy just grabs their collar and pulls their head down, what then do they do? Because they don't have the strength to power out of it. They don't have that slack that they can play with. They have to have a technical answer. So if you, if I could only have Small instructors, I would go with small instructors. Of course, there are technical big guys. I mean, James Foster comes to mind, super technical big guy, does little guy jiu-jitsu all the time. But, by and large, big guys cheat a little bit more, use their weight, use their strength, whereas little guys just can't. So I, I really, really learned a lot from working with those two guys for the How to Defeat the Bigger, Stronger Opponent of Series 1 and 2. And there's stuff in there that I use to this day. You know, I, I think I filmed that maybe uh, the first one, maybe seven years ago, and I still use stuff from that today. Yeah, that was really quality stuff. I always tell the newer little guys that I talk to that um, they, they won't have as much trouble rolling with the big guys when they realize that they actually do have a couple of advantages that they can exploit. You know, they can, they can move in smaller spaces and they can get from one place to another quicker generally. And when they start to exploit that, then the big guy loses some of the advantage he has. For sure. I mean, that's, uh, and they're slithery. They're small and they're beady eyed. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> Little varmints. <laughs> they're devious. Uh, usually they're flexible too. Yep. Um, yeah. It, uh, everybody can learn from everybody, but big guys pay attention to the little guys in particular. Yeah. Awesome. Well, anyway, again, thanks for all your work with that, uh, with oh, grapple arts and the content you put out there. So you mentioned canoeing. You recently did a thousand mile canoe trip. First question. 
What gave you the idea to do this? I mean, where, where did this come from? Okay. Well, I used to do a lot of this, right? I used to, I worked as a canoe guide for a season. I worked as a raft guide for a season. I spent a summer out in the Arctic when I was doing my master's in botany. Not that that has anything to do with my life right now. I spent, there was a period of time when, you know, I was doing a ton of field work uh, as a biologist or as a research assistant. I spent a ton of time out in the bush and I was research, I was doing a really big trip back in the nineties. And this trip was actually even longer. It was even longer than the one I just did now. And in the research for it, uh, basically the Eastern Arctic. So if you think of Canada, if you can sort of visualize Canada and you can visualize Hudson Bay, mm-hmm. right? The big dip that comes into the top of it that kind of splits the, makes the, the whole country look like a giant upside down U. To the left of Hudson Bay is an area of tundra and a tree line, essentially, that's very different from the rest of the Arctic. It's, it's really, uh, pretty barren. It's the barren lands, right? If you ever read any Farley Mowat, he wrote a lot about it. If you've ever heard about the barren lands, this is what we're talking about. And I started researching about an old route that the natives used to take. The Inuit would take it to go south to trade. The Dene, the, the Chippewan Indians, would use it to go north to hunt caribou out on the uh, on the barrens. Who owned you know who owned it or who lived there? I mean, the idea of ownership was a little bit foreign, but who dominated that area depended on who had been wiped out by the latest uh, epidemic, quite honestly, and whether the climate the climate was getting colder or warmer. But it was this intermediate area. And it was, I was just fascinated by the history of it. And there's so many, I mean, it was central to the fur trade back in the day. And now it's kind of abandoned, right? But there are routes there that people have been doing for 5,000 years. I think that area was deglaciated. So the ice came off that area about six to 8,000 years ago. So people have been doing traveling in that area for thousands of years. And so it always fascinated me. And then, uh, you know, I did those big long trips in my youth and then I got jobs and then I started grapple arts and then I got married and then I had kids. And then I, uh, I don't know if your listeners know in, uh, 2010 about, I found out that I had a genetic kidney condition that was shutting my kidneys down. So then in 2014, I had a life-saving kidney transplant, oh, sorry, 2015, had a life-saving kidney transplant from my brother. And so, you know, I've been, and then I also went through a divorce at that time. And, you know, raising kids is it's is definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. Forget canoe trips, forget jujitsu, raising kids. That's really the hardest thing. Absolutely. Um, you talk about mental endurance uh, to resist every iota of your body, which is saying, Strangle this, <laughs> strangle this thing. Uh, you know, I never strangled my kids. I just want to be clear. Uh, so I, this idea of exploring this area, this, it's known as the land of little sticks. It's the 
area of land centered around an amazing lake called Newton Lake, which is humongous. It's 100 miles from north to south. The, the southern part is in the trees. The northern part is in the tundra. So as you paddle north, you, you literally go from forest to tundra over a span of maybe 30 miles. That, that was always in my imagination. I read a lot about it. I read you know, about the trappers who used to live there, about, uh, you know, this crazy American school teacher. I think he was a school teacher and Ojibwa Indian, uh, Billy McGee and Ernest Oberholzer, who in the early part of the 1900s went and did some crazy trip through that area without maps, essentially. So. How they found their way, I do not know. I read my Farley Mowat. I, I, it kind of stayed in my imagination. And then finally it was like, well, you know, I actually have the opportunity. I can create the systems I need to, to go do this finally. And so it, it took in, in some ways 20 years of planning, 20 years of hoping, 20 years of trying to organize my life to be able to, you know, piss off and, go north for essentially a couple of months right without everything falling apart without my kids burning the place down without uh ending up bankrupt without grapple arts imploding without you know losing my firefighting job without all those other things happening and so i finally saw the opening and i went for it and yeah i just got back a week ago and it was amazing it was really really tough it was really challenging and parts of it were really enjoyable so uh how many days did the trip take from the day you launched until the day you got out of the water from the last leg right i had food for 50 days i probably could have stretched that to 55 because i was pretty generous with the food and in the end i got it done in 42 and how many of those days were you actually underway i i 41 so so you one I took one day of unintended rest when I was completely windbound on a very small body of water uh, the wind was Yeah I I saw that post and so only one day you were down well, Yeah there were other days I was down for half a day right you'd you'd get up in the morning you'd like there's no way I'm traveling and you'd keep on waiting for the wind to drop and maybe around 5 o'clock the wind would drop I'm like okay you know at four o'clock, you're like, I think this is going down. At five o'clock, you'd be all packed and you'd be on the water and stay on the water for at least four or five hours. So that was a, that was a, a half day. I think there were, I don't know, maybe five or six half days and one complete day off. Wow. But I should point out that on the complete day off, I did break camp completely, which takes a couple of hours, pack my boat, paddle about a hundred yards till I hit the edge of the bay that I was hiding in just got blasted by the wind and like, okay, this is not going to work. <laughs> Turned around and went back to the exact same campsite. I had just left that I'd kind of carved into the trees at the edge of a narrow beach and set up the tent in the exact same place, except now everything is soaking wet. So, so on top of paddling for, I don't know how many hours a day you did that. You have a couple hours of making camp every day and a couple hours of breaking camp every morning. Yeah. Yeah. The fastest you can break camp, especially alone and have some kind of food. And especially you're talking more of a, I had kind of a canoe kayak hybrid. 
So packing stuff's a little bit more complicated. But even if you're dealing with any kind of expedition, you got to tie your like a if you have your backpacks and your bags and stuff, it all needs to be tied in, right? If you if it's loose and you go over in the rapids, you're gonna it's gonna be a yard sale and you're gonna lose everything. If it's all tied in, then it essentially acts as flotation if it's all waterproof. And yes, you could lose that, but at least you only have to keep track of one thing. Keep track of the big red object bouncing down the rapids, and you might recover most of what you own if it's loose. So it, the process of packing everything into the boat, you know, it's not a fast process. The fastest I could do it in, hour and a half, most mornings two and a half, setting up camp and trying to squeeze some food down the gullet, usually two, two and a half hours, and then the thing that people might find surprising is there's usually an hour of repairs. You probably have to fix something that's broken. You probably have to, you know, in my case, all of my maps, they were waterproofed, but not enough. They got absolutely soaked because they were in a water, what I thought was a waterproof container on the first day, and they just got absolutely soaked, and it took days and days to dry them out, and then I was, de- it was like dealing with a red, with a dead sea scrolls, right? It, it delicate pieces of paper held together with tape and best wishes and so trying to figure out where you're going the next day was not so easy as just grabbing the next map it was grabbing the next four fragments of map and then trying to figure out what was in the parts that were missing or you know you got a bear alarm and you need to fix that or you um you your bug net has a giant tear in it and you spend an hour sewing that back together there's always something to fix once you're on a trip that long so what kind of technology did you have with you to kind of go with this old school maps and all that did you have a handheld gps did you have any of that stuff was it usable where you were at yes um my electronics were because my one indulgence i didn't bring any books didn't bring any musical instruments. I didn't bring a fishing rod, which to fishermen who would know the area is tragic because the amount of lake trout and perch and grayling and pike there is insane. It's absolutely bananas. But I figured that if I had time for fishing, I had time for paddling, and I should be paddling. So uh, my only indulgence really was taking photos and posting them to Instagram and Facebook. So if you go to Instagram, if you go to my Instagram, which is Stefan underscore casting, uh, you can see a fair number of photos. And those were, uh, I was able to upload them because I was carrying a small satellite dish. So if I had to do that trip again, and I just had to go absolutely as fast as I could, I would lose all the electronics. And that would probably make me 20 pounds lighter maybe 15 pounds lighter, and that might make me a bit faster. So yeah, I had a a, sat, a small, it's called a BGAN unit, B-G-A-N. I didn't know that these things existed before doing the research. And basically at $3,000 a gigabyte at dial-up speeds, you too can upload data to the internet. So I would upload heavily compressed photos and a text file to Google Drive. And then a friend of mine would post them on Instagram for me. So I wasn't reading anything. I didn't see any comments. I had no idea how popular it was. I had no idea who was saying what. I had no idea how many likes, how many views, nothing. But it was just one-way information. I also had a satellite phone. And I also did have 
uh, a Garmin InReach, which is an amazing GPS unit with basic messaging capability. That is really, I'm basically, if you're in the woods now, if you're seriously in the woods without some kind of inReach or spot device, you're an idiot. And I include myself in that. I, before this technology existed, you don't, you're not to blame. But now that it exists, you know, you can't be blamed for not wearing your seatbelt in the 1930s. You can be blamed for not wearing your seatbelt in the 20 teens. You know, the, the seatbelts exist. You can be blamed for going in there and disabling your airbag. Airbags save lives. On, on the whole, they save lives. Uh, similarly, the, the inReach is an amazing device. And I think there are other equivalent devices out there. It, it allows you to see where you are on a big, crude map. I don't think you should rely on that for navigation, but you can use it to confirm. And if you're in a tricky area with a whole bunch of islands and inlets and shoals and, you know, complicated topography, it can help clarify something that would take 15 minutes of triangulation with map and compass in about 10 seconds. So it's a useful piece of kit there. Also, the basic messaging was really important for coordinating the pickup on Hudson Bay. And the, it's got an SOS function. If you're, if you, it was more sophisticated than they were. If, if there were any old school pilots or any old school bush guys listening, there used to be this thing called an EPIRB, an emergency location transmitter, basically on off. If it was on, it was, I'm really in trouble. Come get me. And, you know, if, if it was some military helicopter flying a thousand miles to come get you, that's what you were getting. Whereas that might not be what you need. So these new in-reach devices, you know, you, you can say, I'm really in trouble. And they're like, what's your problem? And you could say, I lost my tent, but I'm alive. You know, I've broken my leg. I've got arterial bleeding or I've lost all my matches. Those are require different levels of response, right? If you lost your matches, the answer might be, okay, go hang out in your sleeping bag for a couple of days and we'll drop some off by plane. We'll send a Cessna over top and we'll send you 85 boxes of matches. The other version, they send out the big giant Chinook and they rappel down and they, they pick you up, but you might be on the hook for the bill. So it's useful to have some level of um, be able to calibrate the response of the emergency response services. Yeah, absolutely. And when you do a cost-benefit analysis on that piece of equipment, what does it cost and what's the worst-case scenario if I don't have it? It's definitely worth spending the money, I would guess. Yeah, it's, it's about 500 Canadian, so I'm guessing 400 U.S. And depending the level of service that you want, and some would probably... I, mean, I, I went full meal deal on the service, so I had unlimited satellite texting, uh, which was real, and then unlimited uh, weather updates. Which were really useful. I, I, I did not have a lot of luck with the weather on this trip, Joe. I, I got nailed pretty badly by uh, some really bad weather systems, especially towards the end out on the tundra uh, where there are no trees to help slow down the wind. It, uh, it was really useful to know even a very basic idea. Is it going to be windy tomorrow? Yes or no? Because it affects, you know, where you, how fast you think you're going to travel, you might prompt you to then try and get a maritime forecast from somebody. So it was my first trip that I was that heavily connected, which came with its own set of problems. Weight is number one. 
keeping all that stuff charged with a solar panel, that's not as easy as it sounds. You know, it's easy to say, throw up a solar panel on the back of your boat as you're traveling. What if you're going through whitewater? And also a flat solar panel doesn't collect that much energy. you got to be pointing right at the sun. If it's overcast at all, you're not collecting much energy. Where do you store it? How do you get it from something that is waterproof, like a solar panel, to something that's not waterproof, like a sat phone? It, it, it's logistically quite difficult to keep everything charged. So you've done a lot of this outback stuff before, but how, logistically, how do you gear up for this? Did you spend uh, several weeks gathering supplies? Uh, I think if I remember from some of your posts that you pre-packed things. Um, how did that go? And also tell me about your physical prep. What kind of work did you do to make sure you were in physical shape and ready for this? Well, both of those, the answers to both of those things, I mean, I've done these just before, so that helped, right? It gives you some kind of idea. And I didn't start out by doing big, giant trips. Just like if you're starting jiu-jitsu, you're not going to go compete at the black belt level of the Mundials right away, right? If you're going to train for three months, six months, a year, and then compete as a white belt at your local tournament. So when I started doing solo trips, it was one day, it was three days, it was a week. And, you know, it allows you to get all the bugs. It was with other people. It was learning from other people. So I, I didn't have to figure all this out from scratch. But I got two really good tips from Will Gadd, who I had on my podcast. Will Gadd is the ice climber who climbed Niagara Falls in the middle of winter for Red Bull. So he's, he's pretty famous in the ice climbing uh, community. And so he gave me the tip that, if you're preparing for something like this, use a spreadsheet. So you're going to have a spreadsheet. Page one might be uh, logistics. How do I get there? You know, tab two of your that same spreadsheet might be uh, boat and related equipment. Page three might be other equipment. Page four might be food. Page five might be electronics. And then you keep all your notes organized there as you're doing your research. So I was, you know, as I was going through and trying to figure out how many calories I was going to have per day and and doing the math on that and then doing testing out the different recipes and I was keeping track of all that in that spreadsheet. So it was the first time I ever used a spreadsheet. I've always just used paper before. I thought having everything in one place was super crazy useful. Like, what are the tides on Hudson Bay going to be? Okay, then I'll go in another tab on the spreadsheet what are the names of every bush plane company within a thousand miles and what's their number and what's the cell phone number so that i can text it if i have to and put that on another tab having all that organized like that was incredibly useful and the second will gadism is i remember asking him how he prepares for a big climb and i was hoping for an answer much like you probably would like well, Stefan, first I start with 10 pull-ups, uh, a minute, and I do that for 13 minutes, and then I, in the second week, I progress to 14 pull-ups, and I only do it at 50-second intervals, and then I do pull-ups with ice axes, and I do pull-ups with, you know, two fingers and one finger, and his comment was, man, logistics is way more important than all of that. If you don't have your logistics down, it doesn't matter what condition you're in logistics 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 and 
So that was great comfort to me because I actually went into this trip pretty beat up. Uh, my hip was really bugging me. That's just from years of martial arts training. My shoulder, I had uh, wiggled out of some horrendous omoplata slash kimura type lock. That was just pure ego. Pure ego on my part. My going, nope. This guy is 30 pounds less than me and much, much lower rank than I am. And I'm not tapping at this stupid move. And I got out. And my shoulder was in agony for a couple of months. Like to the point where I couldn't do a dip. Where I could do a couple of pull-ups. And to do push-ups, I had to have my hands completely pointing out to the side. So completely everted hands. If I had any kind of fingers pointing the way that they normally point or pointing in, my shoulder would just basically collapse in agony. And I had tendonitis, which was a combination of too much training with a gi and too many kipping pull-ups in my other elbow. And so I was a wreck, really. My training, physical training for this was mostly cardio because it was the one thing I could do that didn't hurt too bad. And also, ultimately, cardio determines how fast you recover from something. There's a lot of people out there going, yeah, you know what? A jiu-jitsu match is uh, five minutes, so you you should not do any cardio longer than five minutes. And I completely disagree. Yeah, that's how long a jiu-jitsu... I mean, doing, sprint, doing sprints are great. Doing lactic acid intervals are great. But uh, you're typically going to go into a class that's, say, a couple hours long. If you're bagged in the first 40 minutes of that class... You're not really learning much for the rest of the class. You're, you're on autopilot. You're in survival mode, which will make you tougher, which has got some value. But wouldn't it be better to be getting tougher and still continuing to learn, still continuing to think? So I think cardio in the sense of long-term endurance underlies everything. Yeah. It also, <laughs> it also affects how fast you recover from short, brief exertion. Sorry, what, you were, what were you about to say? Well, I was going to say another aspect of long-term endurance, and, and, and that's relative, right? For one, for one person running three or four miles might be long, long endurance for them, and other guys running a marathon. But when you, whatever you're accustomed to, when you start to push it beyond that, it teaches you so much about yourself, and it teaches you how to dig deep, and it teaches you how to push through when you think you can't go any further. So oh, no question. I, I, I agree with you. There's tremendous value in that. Yeah, I, w I would say it sort of starts at around the 20-minute mark. Like, if you... I, I would say that that um, long, slow distance training, you know, like you said, three or four miles, yeah, for some people, you know, most people, that if, if they're barely, you know, that would take them about 20 minutes-ish, maybe a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly when I started running years ago, 20 minutes was about all I could manage. And then I worked up to much longer distances and anyway, now honestly i'm paying the price because at 220 pounds you know i don't have a runner's body so you know that's what i was weighing back then when i was doing more more of that running so that was a lot of pounding on the joints but you can get endurance any any way you want i mean my standard endurance building activity is i'm lucky i live close to the mountains and there's this one particular mountain where, you know, you basically climb up and take the gondola down. And the fastest I've ever done that hike, it's not world, like the world record. I think it's something like 23 minutes, but it was some cycling whippet. 
you know, who then later got busted for being on EPO and other performance mm, and yep. drugs. Regardless, 23 minutes is amazing. Uh, fastest I ever did it in was 42. Nowadays, I'm doing it in about 50-ish. So, but it's still better than nothing. Something is better than nothing. And doing that endurance training, uh, was all, first of all, it was all I could do. And secondly, it, it'll, I think it allowed for that mental toughness, like you, you're going to be exhausted no matter how fit you are, but can you keep on going then? Like, or can you take a short break and then keep going? And then can you take another short break and then keep going? And especially in early in the trip, you know, as the day went on, I'd go from taking a short break every one or two kilometers, so every one or two miles, to, you know, as the day went on, like, okay, every 10 minutes, all right, like, you know, late in the day, paddle 10 minutes, rest a minute, paddle 10 minutes, rest a minute, just don't stop. Or, or if you do stop, don't stop for too long. And then, you know, your body adapts and, or it breaks. And I was lucky that mine didn't break. It adapted. Yeah. Now that, that idea of not just paddling until you're exhausted and then resting as long as you need, but having a predetermined, I'm going to paddle 10 minutes, rest five, paddle 10, rest five. Do you, do you think that's a smart way to train jujitsu as well? Specifically, like you get to the open mat, you get to the live rolling portion. Um, if I've got time to roll six rounds, but I can't really roll six rounds, do I roll three or four as hard as I can and then quit? Or do I set out from the get-go, I'm going to roll every other one, I'm going to roll two, take one off? you think that's smart to, to train that way? Whatever lies you need to tell yourself to train, tell yourself those lies. Uh, and I think people are different. Uh, the one paradigm I use is whether it applies whether it's jiu-jitsu or going to the gym. Just Put on your gi, right? If you feel like crap, I, here's my thing. If I'm going to train, everybody, there are certainly days that objectively you shouldn't train because you're too sick or you're not recovered or you're too overtrained or whatever. And there are days when you feel like crap, but as soon as you train, you feel better, right? And it's tough to tell those two apart. They start out feeling pretty much the same. So having gone and trained many times when I'm a little bit sick and ended up really sick at the end of it or ended up really injured on a day when I'm like, man, if I train today, I'm going to get hurt and then going and getting hurt. I now have this thing about giving myself permission to quit if I put my gi on. So if I go put my gi on and I show up at class and I still really don't feel like training or if I'm going to go and do some weightlifting and I put on my shorts and I put on my t-shirt and I put on my running shoes and I go and I show up at the gym. That's what I have to do. I don't have to train. And if I still feel like, oh, no, then I give myself permission to not do it. It only happens once or twice a year, right, that I actually bail. Mm -hmm. But it gets me in the gym or it gets me on the mat many more days than that. So that's an example of a lie that I tell myself. It's not really a lie. It's a deal with, you know, like, just put on your gi. Just put on your clothes. Then you can quit any time. I also sometimes call it the just a tip strategy, right? Just a tip, just for a second, just to see how it feels. You know, I'm just going to put on this gi just for a minute, just to see how it feels. And if I end up training, usually nine times out of ten, I have a great training session. And that one time that I just feel like absolute crap, 
that's the time I bail, and that's probably the time I would have gotten really sick if I'd trained. So right. that's an example of a lie that I tell myself, another or something to get me out there. So that's something that works for me. You asked, is it better, say you got time for six rolls? You know, you tell yourself, I'm just going to go roll once. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to go roll easy. Yeah. And then after that, maybe you're probably you're going to feel better. Or you, if, if you need to tell yourself, I'm only going to go and roll three times and then I'm going to sit out. I'm only going to roll three times. Yeah, there's six rounds. I'm only going to go three of them. Probably by the end of round three, you'll feel better. And you can do four or five. Probably. So, you know, you, 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 if we have usually much more capacity to perform and to keep going, you know, human beings are essentially endurance athletes. We're an endure, we're not nearly as fast as a cheetah. We're not nearly as fast as a deer, but we can run that guy down, right? I I don't know if you know the idea of, um, popularizing the barefoot running movement that, you know, persistence hunting because we can sweat. And oh, yeah. Can't. Yeah, right. Just keep going after them, just keep them moving that eventually they'll drop dead. And I've read some accounts from, you know, early exploration where that's basically what the natives did. If they didn't have guns, if they didn't have spears, if they didn't have bow and arrows, they would just chase that moose until that moose dropped from exhaustion. Even though a moose can go three times faster five times faster than a human being, if you keep it moving for long enough, it's going to die. So ben, human beings have got really deep ability to keep going. That's another piece of great advice for the smaller grapplers. <laughs> you know, you get them big guys, you just keep them moving, keep them moving, and eventually... Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, what are you going to do? They're not going to be any lighter for you, but they don't move as fast. So if you're small, you've got to move. Yep. And... uh and hopefully your gas tank can support it though, right? Like yeah. that's the thing. If, I mean, a good gas tank is such a weapon in jujitsu. If, here's the example that I always use. Say, let's say that I'm in better shape than you. But let's say we're about equally matched for skill. So you would be able to, if zero is sitting on the couch for you and ten and me, and 10 is just the hardest death match of all time, there's some level there that you can go for hours and hours at. You could probably, at I don't know, 5 out of 10, go for hours and hours, right? You're just rolling, you're mm-hmm. rolling, you're rolling. You get a bit tired, but but as soon as you go up to 6 or 7, now you're beginning to dip into your reserves and your gas tank begins to plummet. If I've got better endurance than you and I know it, if I, I don't want to fight you at 5 out of 5. I want to fight you at 6 or 7. So I don't want to fight you at 5 out of 10. I want to fight you at 6 or 7 out of 10. Just so that you start dipping into your reserves and that I, you know, I'm going to get tired too, but I'm going to get tired slower than you. Mm -hmm. If I I know that my endurance is better than you, I can push the pace. So having, uh, I like what Daniel, to take us back to Junfan JKD and the Filipino martial arts, I like what Daniel Santos said. Endurance is the most important attribute. It's more important than speed. It's more important than power, balance, strength, sensitivity, athleticism. Because if you're tired, you're not strong. If you're tired, you're not fast. If you're tired, you don't have good balance. If you're tired, you're not even smart. So 
if, if that one lack of that one attribute can undermine every other attribute that you have and even your your intelligence then uh then that's clearly the thing that needs to underlie everything absolutely so in jiu-jitsu man we face a lot of challenges and i i want to kind of relate that to some of the things you might have faced on your trip so as you launched as you got underway what was your first big challenge maybe something unexpected or maybe it was worse than you expected something that maybe was there anything along the way that could have derailed your trip oh there's tons of things it's i think the idea of problem solving is very much active in both worlds uh problem solving in in the jiu-jitsu world is i'm in your clothes guard and you're beginning to pull my elbow across your center line. In a certain sense, you're asking me a question like, hey, testing, do you know the answer to this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to armbar me or you're going to stuff that arm and triangle me or you're going to take my back, right? Like it, only bad things happen if my arm begins to cross your center line. If I know the answer, now we ask, maybe I ask you the next question. Do you know what to do if I stand up? Or maybe you ask me the next question. Do you know what to do if I get a really deep lapel grip or whatever? So it's continuous problem solving. I'm trying to give you problems, either problems you can't solve or problems in such fast sequence that you can't solve them in time. Uh, traveling in the outdoors is also continuous problem solving. You're at the top of a rapid. How do you get down it? You've got different skill sets that you can apply here, right? You can run the rapid. You can line the rapid you can take ropes and lower your boat down essentially or just shoot it through the smaller cracks now the boat is lighter you can wade your boat down you can portage some of your stuff and run the rapid you can portage all your stuff if you have a pole you can pull your rap your boat down the rapid uh if you're going to run the rapid do you go in the shallow bits on the side or do you go down the deeper channels in the middle right you have different skill sets or different uh answers that you can use to tackle that problem um so every day you're dealing with tons of those issues i'll say one of the things that might seem easy that was really probably one of the most dangerous things i did was sailing so i had a 1.4 square meter sail by a company called falcon sails they make an amazing folding sail if it's rigged on your boat your kayak your canoe or your whatever you can literally have it from stowed on your deck to upright, <clears throat> ready to sail in 10 seconds. You can tack into the wind just a little bit. But the disadvantage is that you're giving this huge lever to the wind. Right? It's this really tall thing. And if a wind gust comes up, you don't have a deep keel. You're not a sailboat. Mm -hmm. You're going over, especially if you're doing some kind of fancy, you know, traveling uh, perpendicular to the wind or trying to tack into it. Uh, if it's getting windy, if it's getting wavy, if it's, so it seems like an advantage and it is. It's, it's jet fuel on, on the days that I, on the few days that I had a tailwind, it allowed me to cover tremendous distances, right? There was one day I covered almost 60 miles in a single day, uh, with it. And I also had a, had a current helping me. That's a long way to go on a canoe, but it's also, you have to be on continuous alert, right? If, if, if a gust of wind comes, 
you're screwed, right? There's, there's all kinds of dangers out there. There's polar bear, there's black bear, there's grizzly bear, there's rapids, there's storms, there's lightning, uh, there's hypothermia. But the big danger, really, statistically, are the big lakes. More people drown in lakes than anywhere else. If you're out in the middle of a big, giant lake, and some of those lakes that I was on were so big, you can't see the curvature of the earth. If you believe in a round earth, and I do. So what? Uh, <laughs> a round earth? Come on. <laughs> the curvature of the earth is so great that you cannot see the other shore. Right? It is, that's a long way for waves to build up. And if you flip in there, you're dead. Yeah. Like, you're dead. There's nothing you can do. You're going to die. Uh, you can crawl on top of your boat, and you might live a little bit longer. If you're wearing a life jacket, great. They'll be able to find the body. Uh, but you're going to die. So something like that, you know, people might think like, oh, just sit back and sail and relax and put up your heels. No, nah, it, it's, it's felt like running whitewater. It felt like sparring. It felt like every sense is alive all the time, uh, to, um, you know, to try and hear the wind in the trees. Cause it'll hit if you're in an area with trees. So hit there before it hits you to try and hear a white cap coming your way, to try and feel it on your face a second before it hits the sail so you can shift your weight, to feel how the water is behaving under your boat, to see how your boat is shifting. It's, it's, a, it's, an all, it's a full immersion experience. So that felt a little bit like jiu-jitsu to me because if you and I are rolling, we're trying to pay attention to everything, right? And we're, we're trying to use our eyes we're trying to use our sense of our you know feel right i can feel where your wrist is we're trying to use proprioception so you can feel where your own body is uh sometimes you're using the sense of hearing right sometimes you can't see but you can hear the guy or you're trying to i'm trying to listen to your hearing to your breathing and if i can hear it go to labored and like oh okay he's getting tired right it, it's a it's a full Jiu-Jitsu as well is a full-body immersion experience. So I'll say that's a big similarity. So there are many, many things that could have derailed it. Uh, certainly ending up in polar bear country, that's a pretty big potential derailing. And going through, you know, starting in black bear country, going into tundra grizzly, you know, Bearlands grizzly country, and ending up in polar bear country, and there being significant overlap in the ranges between those three species. You know, that's certainly. Um, did, did you did you see did you see any evidence of bear or have any close calls? Uh, I didn't see any polar bear, and I didn't see any grizzly bear. I did see six uh, black bear. Yeah, probably my best bear story from this trip is. Okay, so this is pretty remote country. We're talking no roads. We're talking no cell service. We're talking, you know, no skip the dishes. If there. are uh, this is also past, I passed, uh, four little native reservations, probably like, um, 200, 300, 800 people on the way for the first half of the trip. So this is well past that. Uh, so now I'm, I'm in the last 22 days of the trip. I didn't see anybody. Uh, not even a bush plane, really. Man, that's a lot of time isolation. I, yeah. I guess there's a whole lot you could say about that as well. Just spending that much time by with yourself. 
Yes, I think I'm pretty good company. <laughs> and also, I've raised kids, so after 15 years of that, having a couple of weeks of complete silence, <laughs> I now understand why my mother didn't want the radio playing in the afternoon, didn't want the stereo playing, didn't want music, just silence. But mom, this is such a good record. Just <laughs> silence. I now understand. You know, um, I didn't understand then, mom, but I do now. Uh, also, I mean, if you look at the, I don't know how familiar you are with the whole Myers Briggs personality um, topology. I don't use that a lot, but I find that the most useful differentiation in there is introvert versus extrovert. So I think people have this idea that an introvert is somebody who like sits in the corner rocking back and forth and can't deal with people. And I think by by that classification system, that's incorrect. And an extrovert is somebody who's out there and yelling and screaming and making a fool of themselves. And that's also incorrect. According to the, the Myers-Briggs personality uh, testing system, and I think it comes from Jung, but I'm not sure. An introvert is somebody who draws energy from being by themselves, right? Like they can be social. They can hang out with people. They can chat with people. They can appear on somebody's podcast. They can appear completely normal. But when they're tired, they like to retreat with a book. They like to go and have some peace and quiet and be by themselves. And that's how they get their energy back. Whereas an extrovert wants to go hang out with friends to get energy or wants to go dancing or wants to, you know, I don't go, go out to a bar with friends where there's people, go out to a coffee shop just because there's people around. And that's how they get their energy. So I'm very much an introvert, right? I get, I get my energy when I'm tired, my peace and quiet, my being alone. It, it, you know, I have, I think I'm fairly good in crowds. I think I'm fairly good with people, but ultimately I, I would be an introvert. So I think that helped with the being alone. Yeah. So, so I know uh, you posted that you were a little run down. You were a little susceptible to, uh, to being run down after the trip, but overall, do you feel rejuvenated? Do you feel uh, better off for this and like you're excited about the next step? Yes, a hundred percent. I felt it's now been, uh, essentially a week since I got back and I'm just beginning to feel normal. I, the last week of that trip was really hard and the last few days were really, really hard. I mean, we're talking like maybe five hours horizontal of which maybe three hours of sleep a night, getting up at five in the morning, being on the water by six thirty in the morning not touching land really for 14 hours paddling till it got dark then starting the process of pitching the tent in the dark uh you know pitching the bed you know setting up the barrel arm you know, trying to fix whatever was broken that day and then going again the next day and then of course uh, got some really badass headwinds on the last day which i hadn't been expecting and then finally making it to Hudson Bay and finally meeting the person who is picking me up to take me the last 40 miles or 60 kilometers to Arviat, which is a small town on the coast of Hudson Bay. But that still then being a three-hour ride in an open aluminum boat on what's essentially the ocean, right? Salt water, yep. freezing cold. Uh, you're traveling at 30 miles an hour. Waves are going in your face. You're not moving. You've already been up since five in the morning. You didn't get a lot of sleep. You have been pushing it really hard. 
And so, yeah, I, I and then, of course, <laughs> to top it off, you end up spending a day the next day in airports and airplanes where basically the germ menagerie of the world lives. So, yeah, not surprisingly, I came down with a cold after that. And it's, I'm just getting over it. You might hear it in my voice. So, yeah, it beat the crap out of me the last few days did. And then, not surprisingly, I got sick. It's like a marathon runner really pushing themselves, coming out with a lung infection after a marathon. It, it happens. Is it totally worth it? Yeah, it's totally worth it. Um, yeah, I've been processing it, but it's not its not my first long solo trip. I, I did do this back in the day. And uh, so I have some clue about the reintroduction to society. I mean, it's its funny to go from a world where where you're essentially facing potential calamity every day where you're interacting, you know, you, you've got guns, you've got loaded guns. You might even have loaded and chambered guns, depending on what just set off your barrel arm um, to go on to an, an airport where they're like, sir, is that a hatchet in your <laughs> checked baggage? I'm like, yeah. Oh, that could come out. And I'm like, it's in a sheath. Well, it could still slip for like having to take it apart and show them how this hatchet isn't going to magically fly out of this bag and fly across the airport and slit the throat. Like just dealing with childish, idiotic stuff in the name of safety when you've been dealing with real safety issues for a couple of months. Like legitimate safety issues. Like you could die if you do this wrong. Um, oh, right. I was going to tell you the bear story. Yes, so yes. Maybe... Uh, yeah, it, what's a good uh, northern adventure without a bear story? So, on my route, there were three giant lodges, hunting fishing lodges. There was the Newelton Lodges Association or company, and they flew in, I'll say, a hundred million dollars worth of stuff. There's these giant lodges, like one is probably ten thousand square feet, the other is like eight thousand square feet, and the other one's not as big. All of them had outbuildings where people could camp or not camp, stay in, where hunters and fishermen could fly in. There probably 50 boats up there, like perfectly functional aluminum boats. I'll say maybe 100 outboard motors, batteries, ATVs, tools, uh, satellite dishes. And the company went out of business, and the owners just walked away. All that stuff is up there. It's like, it's like some, uh, I don't know, it's like Thanos screwed up and killed everybody and just one day everyone working on site vanished. And so the first of these three lodges that I found was really cool. And I was like, well, it was late in the day. I was looking for a place to camp anyway. It, it wasn't abundant. It was on Casimir Lake. And I saw this thing. I'm like that looks like a giant building. How how can that be? I I didn't know that it was there. So I, I piled up to it, and it was a giant building. And the main lodge was a bit musty, but the cabins were nice. One of the cabins was nice. Most of them were smashed in from bear. So I stayed for a night in the cabin. I had a good association with this uh, with this lodge. So the next, so I paddled on for another week, and then found I found the big mama lodge. This is a tree line lodge. And it had more boats and more outboard motors and more ATVs. And I'm going, it's the middle of the day. And this stuff's all just a banner. It's like a ghost town, huh? 
like a ghost town. Nice. Like everyone just evaporated. <laughs> and it's so expensive to get stuff out. Like it, it's, you know, I don't mind telling people about this because if they chartered a plane and they picked up every last outboard motor and they flew it out, they'd still be losing money on the plane. Right. right? Like it's, it's distant. That's why it costs millions and millions and millions of dollars to build. So I'm going up to the second, I just leave my boat at the, uh, at the beach and I'm going up and looking at the cabins and they're pretty smashed, right? There, there's not any good ones there. And I see a bear print in the sand, but no big deal. It's sand, right? Of course, it's going to be a bear print here. It hasn't. Now, 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 for those of us that aren't from the great white north up there, how big is this bear print? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at my hand here. Maybe I'll go seven, eight inches from claw to heel. So not a grizzly, not a polar bear, like a polar bear bear footprint. That's the size of a dinner plate. Okay. Um, but a black bear. A couple hundred pounds? Oh, I don't know. I never did see this one, but uh, let me explain why. So I, I went up, looking at all these cabins, they're all destroyed, and I get to the main lodge, and it's a big building, and it's got multiple entrances, and that far north, it's pretty common to have what's called a bear plate, which is like a piece of um, plywood with a whole bunch of super sharp nails pointing upwards, and you leave it by your front door, so that if a bear comes, try to break in, he steps on that and leaves you alone. Somebody's moved that bear plate. And the front door of the lodge has been kicked in. And I'm like, oh, who would move that bear plate? Like, that's just, that's just asking for trouble. And who would kick this door in? That's just, you know, that's just vandalism. And then I noticed two things at the same time. I noticed that there's about 15 or 20 piles of bear shit within about 10 feet of me. <laughs> and I hear a growling from inside the lodge. And I'm like, oh shit, like, there, this bear has made this entire humongous 10,000 square foot lodge his den. <laughs> and it's one thing to run into a bear on the trail, right? Like, you know, you should move out of the way, he should move out of the way, somebody should move out of the way. It's an entirely different thing to corner a bear in its den, right? Now it's a defensive reaction. Now it thinks you're after it. If it's a female, I don't know if it was a female, you're after its cubs. Now you're going to trigger a defensive attack. And that's like a really bad situation. So I got the hell out of there. I went a different route, you know, more direct back to the boat, about more direct back to the shotgun. And, uh, now I just see bear prints everywhere, including like, I'm not, not, I'm not a tracker. And are, are you a tracker? Are you a hunter? No, no. Okay. So if you have wet, like sand that's a little bit wet, and you have razor sharp claw marks in the sand, and you can still see it's a sunny day, and you can still see the sides of the claw marks where the sand is wet. Would you? How recent would you guess those tracks are? You not being a tracker, like <laughs> last couple of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they they go away if it's a day or two. Yeah, a day or two is going to dry out. It's going to become you know the grains of sand will start falling. You know, get yep. rounded, and so yeah, it's like. No, this was Bear Central. So, yeah, I got the hell out of there, and it was a very nervous uh, um, retreat back to the boat because, you know, you, you have triggered potentially a defensive reaction on the part of that bear, especially if it's a female bear um, with cubs. So, yeah, after that, when I found the third lodge, because I needed, I needed, like, I wonder if they have a hacksaw in that tool shed. And they did because I needed nice. to fix a couple of things. 
I went in there like a first-person shooter game. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Clear the room first, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, don't, I don't play first-person shooter games except in real life. Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah, extremely cognizant of uh, uh, big, brown, furry friends. Yeah, so he was one of those uppity bears that lived in a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, before we get, wrap it up, because we're getting long on time, but I had a couple of listeners that had some questions. Sure. Uh, Emily had been following your progress on Instagram, and she had a question about the wildfires. And I remember that you had encountered them, and, and you were sort of on a deadline, like I got to get this turn point first. She was kind of curious: Did you have any pre warning of those fires, or did you just smell the smoke first? And and how did you navigate through that? Well, it is the boreal forest, right? The southern part of that trip was the boreal forest. Boreal forest burns. Right? It burns more frequently now than it used to, but in general, and I'm going off the top of my head here, most of those spruce forests burn every 75 to 100 years. Right, with As the world heats up, maybe that goes down to 65 to 90 years, something like that. They burn frequently. So certainly in the past, I have seen small wildfires or I've also been affected by really big wildfires far away, right? Like uh, thousands of miles away, mm-hmm. smoke travels. But when you can actually smell the burning and you can see, depending on the time of day, right? As, as the day goes on, the column of smoke becomes more and more defined. Uh, and when it starts like blotting out the sun and your, your, your eyes are smarting from the smoke, you, you can guess it's pretty close. So I actually got on my satellite text device and I texted a friend. I said, Hey, can you please look up? It took a while to coordinate this, but can you please look up Manitoba wildfires and see if there are any in this rough area? And it turned out there were, there were a couple and they weren't that far away. And because I was traveling right into it and the wind was coming towards me, I knew that it was dead ahead of me. So I had some warning in the sense that, you know, a a day or two, but then by the time I localized it to where it was, it really was um, basically, you can imagine the river heading, we'll simplify it, uh, heading northwest and then at a certain point hanging a big corner and heading northeast. And the fire, I was heading northwest and the fire was directly ahead of me. I still have to look it up. Probably 10, 20 miles, something like that. And not certainly not further, not based on those coordinates that I ended up getting from the uh, Manitoba Fire Office or whatever it's called. So the race was to get to that turning point and basically get out of the way of the fire. In order to get out of the way of the fire, I had to go towards it. It was being blown towards you, I take it. It was being blown towards me, yeah. So... That was some extremely long days. I was like 14-hour days. How how many days were you in the smoke? I'll say two and a half days really badly. Okay. And then every once in a while you see it looks like a nuclear bomb had gone off in the distance. You know, there are wildfires up there. They're they're normal. They are part of the, the ecology. I mean, there's trees there that don't, that don't, grow that don't sprout unless there's a wildfire right that area has been burning a long time 
So it's, they're not that uncommon. There's a lot of thunderstorms up there, too, to light them. So I don't know. I hope that answers Emily's question. I, I had some notice, and I knew that there was a reasonable chance that I'd be dealing with wildfires. We had another listener that uh, had a question for you, and you don't have to get into personal details or information you don't want to divulge, but Nathan was curious about the cost. And I, so I guess I would expand on that and not just the financial cost, but like you said, you put grapple arts on hold, you've got other things going on, you've got a family. So talk a little bit about the cost that goes into making a trip like this. Well, in some ways you've got choices, right? In some ways, if you don't have the money, then you got more time. So when I did stuff like this in my twenties, I didn't have a fancy ass boat. I just had the canoe that I had. I didn't have, I didn't go rent a fancy ass, uh, satellite phone or a satellite dish. I didn't use that, you know, I didn't use that much freeze dried food, but I did use more this time than I did the last time. Uh, I didn't have the really super crazy high end Arteryx rain gear. So if I had, if all of my camping gear disappeared and I had to do that trip again tomorrow, it would probably, and I haven't done the math yet, but it'd be expensive. I mean, it, the boat itself, like I had a fancy, uh, it's called a C1. It's kind of a canoe kayak hybrid. That's probably four grand US to replace, right? Now mm-hmm. you're talking a $400 paddle and you need three of them. Because you might break one, you might lose the other. It's a Hilleberg tent. Those are really, really good tents, right? Before in my, again, in my, in my, in my twenties, back when I was a young man, <laughs> but, uh, I just used a uh, Eureka Timberline. Those are like two hundred fifty bucks. Now, they're more susceptible to breaking. You have to take more care pitching them. They're not as waterproof. So I really did go top of the line gear this time. Um, I don't have. A, I'm not trying to dodge. I'd answer the question if I had a guess. Uh, let's say twenty. The cost of replacing everything: boat, uh, flashlights, sleeping bag, thermarest, uh, waterproof bags. If I lost everything, probably twenty grand. Uh, I, I'm making that number up, but it's and then getting everything to where it's supposed to be by bus and by not by bus, by cargo company and by airplane make that easily another eight grand. Like it's not cheap. Yeah. It's really not cheap. Yeah. Airplanes in the Northwest territories and in Nunavut, you know, I was looking, I could fly to Los Angeles for maybe $250 to fly the same length of time. in Nunavut is 10 times that, right? It's even on a, not on a, not on a bush plane, just on the one airline that works up there, the two airlines that work up there. They just don't have the volume. So yeah, I, that's my best guess. I'll say, I'll throw, I could be off by five grand either way. Say 28 grand. Like, that's a lot of money. But then again, I've been looking forward to this for 20 years. So. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, just my rudimentary math. That's seven or eight hundred dollars a day. <laughs> when, when you think about it, you, you were. Please don't do that math. Please don't do that math. Uh, yeah, it's not cheap, but I didn't do it the cheap way either. I mean, I, I do have kids, right? So then, like, the idea of spending an extra thousand bucks to have really good communication systems to get me out of trouble is worth it. 
right? Like, absolutely, yes. Or do I get the like it? it, That does reset your boundaries. Like, if if paying a bit more money increases the chances of you coming home and not leaving them, well, they wouldn't be orphans, but you know, fatherless. You're going to pay that money if you can. Yeah, and I could, so I did. Um, In terms of other costs, it was for getting grapple arts to. It's just a ton of planning. Just a, like I was pre-filming videos six months ahead of time and had spreadsheets of like when I'm going to release what and, you know, like, uh, setting things up in advance so that any podcast episodes that I recorded would get properly processed and uploaded. And like, is that's just a ton of pre-planning that, that all went on the spreadsheet? Like that was part of the spreadsheet. How does, how, you know, how do I keep on uploading videos to YouTube and Facebook and Instagram? Well, not Instagram, YouTube and Facebook while I'm gone. How does yeah. that happen? Who does what? Absolutely. Oh. Your, uh, your social media and your grapple arts, now, now that you mention it, it kind of went off without a hitch while you were gone. So you did an awesome job on that, man. Thank you. Yep. Hey, let's close with this. Um, tell me something you learned about yourself. And something you learned that will either make your jujitsu better or will help you make other people's jujitsu better because of this trip. Hmm. I think I've already shared the thing that I learned, which is that really you can push yourself a lot harder than you think you can, probably. Right? It, especially if you build up to it a little bit, right? What I, a day that would have been impossible to do like hey how about how's this for a workout plan do the same thing take 20 to thirty thousand paddle strokes a day every day without a break except one uh for 42 days and by the end of it you'll actually be stronger and in better shape than you were at the beginning as opposed to broke down like your your body and your mind have got deep deep reserves that you can access it won't work every time but it'll work Far more often than you can. Like the, of course you have to take care of your body. Of course you have to try and get good sleep. Just because you had a shitty night's sleep, just because you got three hours of sleep one night, man, you can probably do. You know, you can probably do everything that you still wanted to do. Like the the ability to push yourself mentally and like play little games with yourself and like man all i'm gonna do is another 100 strokes that's it 100 strokes 100 strokes let's start counting them now one two three four and then 100 strokes later you're like you know what i can keep going i i can keep going so the ability to keep going is is uh one really useful thing that i learned and i think in terms of jiu-jitsu, look, most people want to get good at jiu-jitsu. And jiu-jitsu is a really hard thing to do. Like, it really is. It's really complicated. There are so many positions and so many variations and so many techniques. And even if you don't use every technique, and you shouldn't, and even if you don't use every submission, and you shouldn't. Boy, the, that's another story, it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you're going to use a subset of all the techniques. But you got to be ready for all of them because somebody might come at you with that roll, crazy rolling knee slicer attack from half guard bottom. 
you might not use it, but you got to know how to deal with it. It's and it's physically tough, and it's a long-term goal. And really, just so long as you make a bit of progress every day, and on that might mean training. It usually on most days that'll mean some form of training, but on some days that might mean recovering. On some days that might be, look, I can't train today, but damn it, I'm going to find two new ways to get out of Lasso Guard and pass Lasso Guard. Right? So then you go watch 25 YouTube videos or 10 YouTube videos and you pick two of them that you're going to drill. Or even it's like uh, the thing that you're doing today to eventually get your black belt is to go do physio for your shoulder that's been bugging you. You're finally going to make that appointment. You're going to get a diagnosis. You're going to find out what's wrong with you. And you're going to start doing whatever it is that they say to get better, to get back on track. So, so long as you're doing something every day and moving that ball forward, then you're going to probably get there. You're going to get there, right? So on the trip, I was either paddling or... If I couldn't paddle, it's like, what else can I do to advance this trip? Some days, when the wind was going so strong that I couldn't paddle on the lake, that meant tying ropes to the front and the back of the boat and walking the boat along the shore. I'm not going to go very far, but I'm going to go further than I would if I didn't do anything at all. Some days that meant spending two hours breaking my gear down at five o'clock at night, paddling for two hours, and then spending two hours setting my stuff up again. Not an efficient use of the day, but that's two more hours downriver or upriver than I would have been if I hadn't done that. Or if I couldn't travel at all, what's the best thing that I can do to set me up for success tomorrow? That might mean spending an hour patching maps. And like in my case, I told you my maps were all screwed up, like gluing them together or taping them together. And then trying to sleep. I suck at napping, but I got a little bit better at that trip, mostly because I was so exhausted. So in that case, the best, the two best things I could do, or three best things, was to eat, patch my maps, and nap, and just be ready to go. And if that opportunity came that day, it came that day. If it didn't come that day, it came the next day. So what either can I do to move me down, uh, up or down the river towards the end, or set me up for success the next day, if you approach your jiu-jitsu the same way, what can I do today to get better on the mats or set me up for success the next time that I get on the maps, on the ma- on the maps, on the mats? I think if you approach it that way, you're going to get better over time. Man, I think that's golden. Uh, you, you can't train every day, but I like that. What else can I do to advance this journey? Because jujitsu, just like your canoe trip, it's a journey. And whatever you can do to keep that moving forward is great. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Hey, Stefan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I think this, this conversation is going to be inspirational to our listeners, and I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. So have I. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I'd like to thank Stefan Casting again for being on the show. He's been a guest a few times, and this was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, Gary, what do you think? You know, I'm just, uh, 
I don't, I'm speechless. I mean, I, I that's uh, you know something I think people dream about, and to actually execute it and do it, um, you know, is just incredible. Um, you know, off the air before the show started, you know, I, I was talking to Joe about this trip, and you know, Joe and I and Byron and you have you. I mean, we we all followed along with uh, Stefan on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, or wherever he's posting. Um, and, you know, we were just like, man, you know, all in the back of our head, man, I wish I could do that. And, you know, like I was talking to Joe, you know, one thing I've always wanted to do is hike the Appalachian Trail. And uh, here I am, 52 years old, never even started or got close to it. It's just a little dream in my head. And, and I guarantee you that's how Stefan started, just a little dream in his head. Um, you know, but he took action. He just, uh, you know, followed the, the quote we just talked about. Um, you know, Stefan's had setbacks. Um, uh, you know, kidney, let's see, got a, a trunk, I remember. Um, and, you know, to go through all that and still do this, uh, you know, that's just incredible. I mean, iron will, you know, man of determination, um, you know, to be honest, he's a hero to me. Yeah, you know, I think even before he did this, and I and I was aware of this aspect of what he does, I think his determination and his just dogged hard work is one of the things I've always appreciated about his approach to jiu-jitsu and his approach to his business. He he's, he's not flashy, he's not big into marketing, he just works hard and puts out a consistent product, and so he's a, a, a he's good for our community, that's for sure. Yeah. And, man, that, that trip is just insane, you know. I mean, just seeing pictures of bears. Uh, I know he, you know, one time talked about the, uh, he may, or he got that uh, bear alarm. And, you know, he was telling a little funny story one night about how it went off. And uh, and he was just so happy it worked. But, um, you know, all the, the dangers and hard work and, you know, everything he had, you know, with that trip and, you know, like you said, that's how he's built his life. I mean, you know, he's, he's, you know, just that determination. He's going to get his website up, check grapple arts out, you know, there's a G, all the stuff he has there, but he's just a, a guy that you, I mean, you give him a stick, he's going to figure out how to build a house with it. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's what he reminds me of. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, let's get to our life lesson, Gary. Um, I wanted to bring something, and it involves my kids, many of my life lessons do, but my three youngest kids currently are 20, 22, and 24. So it's been five or six years now they've been segueing out from my house onto their own. And it's not uncommon for kids to need a few bucks here or there. They go to dad for some money. And, and we kind of established early on that I wasn't going to just be a piggy bank, but my wife and I, we live on a couple acres of property and southeast texas and the brush just wants to grow in and overtake our house all the time it's constant work trimming brush cutting trees mowing grass weed eating so i told the kids you know hey you need 20 bucks you need 30 bucks come on over and help with some yard work and i've extended that to their friends too so i, I typically will have an 18 or 20 year old kid over at my house on the weekends doing yard work and uh Sometimes I'm at work when they're there, so I have to give them instruction over the phone or something. Sometimes they don't show up till 2 in the afternoon, and I'm old. I'm not going to be out working at 2 in the afternoon. I do my work early in the morning, so they're out on their own doing work. And a lot of times 
not a lot gets done. You know, I, I send them out, I give them some instruction, and then 10 minutes later, they're in the house. And what did you want me to do after I weed eated this? And 20 minutes later, they're in the house. I can't get the weed eater started. It's, it's that way. And the closer I am to the work that's going on, it seems the more productive it is. But what makes it even more productive, sometimes I'll go out and I'll just work side by side with them. And it, and the work production is increased exponentially. It's not like it's just doubled, but I mean, we get so much more done. And I think that, uh, it's not just because there's two sets of hands doing it, but I think something happens psychologically to these kids when they're working side by side with somebody as opposed to just when they're out on their own or somebody's just giving them direction. It's different to lead somebody as you're going down a path together than it is to stand on the sidelines and just direct them. And I think this has a correlation to jujitsu in that when we have that atmosphere in our gym, we have that environment in our gym where we're all on the same path and we're all working together. I just think it's more productive. I attended a seminar with Diego Gominol a couple months ago. And towards the end of the seminar, he said, does anybody have any questions about the technique? I don't have all the answers, but we can study together. And I just think that's the attitude that we should have within our gyms. What do you think, Gary? Yeah, I remember you were talking about that uh, Diego Gominol seminar. And I remember you, you said that. And, you know, that just really hit me. Um you know, it seems like when I first started this sport, I thought all the instructors knew everything. I really did. I didn't realize it's a long journey. And and I think some people are afraid, um, you know, to say they don't know something. Um, you know, they're afraid that, uh, you know, somebody might look different at them. But, you know, I just thought that's incredible. Said it, you get more done if you take somebody down in that journey with you. Um when you were saying that, it just kind of reminded me of what I was talking about uh, when we, you know, just do it. Uh, you know, I was talking about, uh, you know, uh, Daniel, who I took to jujitsu this morning, and he trained for the first time. And, you know, I'm not just going to tell him to show up. You know, I'm going to take him on that journey with me. You know, hey, Daniel, here's my cell phone number. Um, here's where you park. Here's what you need to wear. Um you know, you might want to consider a mouthpiece. I don't wear a mouthpiece, but here's the pros of mouthpiece, you know, in case you want to. Um, here's the go in. The minute parking lot text me, I'll come out and get you. I'll introduce you to everybody. I, you know, we want to make it easy for somebody. And like you said, I think more got done that way, you know, because it was a journey. It was, you know, a journey together. And uh, just, you know, kind of like what you were saying, more yard work gets done when you're out there working together um you know the it's just that journey to the to the end result yep i think gyms are like that in general anyway i think the jiu-jitsu community has learned that long ago and it's just become a part of our culture uh one of my best memories in jiu-jitsu gear is about i don't know must have been eight or ten years ago is um right when i moved to texas i was kind of looking for a gym and I'd been uh, training for about a year and a half or two years at that point, but I was not in very good shape. I'd been off the mats for a few months, and I visited this gym, and they were doing sit-ups, you know, where you're getting two lines facing each other, and you interlock your ankles, and then both sides start doing sit-ups. Have you seen that before? Yep, yep. I know how you like to interlock your ankles <laughs> with guys there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so we start doing this, and like I said, I was not in very good shape. And after a little while, I couldn't keep up. And so I started like, I'm just going to 
do three, take one off, do three, take one off. And, you know, the people on either side of me or the coach could have come over and like, come on, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. And um, taking that approach. But actually, each guy on either side of me, they interlace their arms around mine. So when they're sitting up, I'm getting an assist every time. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just a simple thing, but it's such a, it makes such a difference when somebody's visiting a gym if that's the culture you have. Yeah, and because you, you know it's it's hard enough to start. It's hard enough to go into a gym, and you know, especially what's the number one excuse we hear about people not wanting to train? I'm not in good enough shape yet. I got to get in shape before I train. And if he, at, there would be no jujitsu around. You know, I mean. Think how many schools you got in the, the Houston, Texas area. There's a school on every corner, which is awesome. But it could be back like it was 20 years ago where, you know, there was only a couple of schools around if, if people were afraid to get in that gym. And as we've said all the time, jiu-jitsu has some of the nicest people. And just hearing your story, um, you know, not everybody's going to walk in the gym in the best shape. We need to make that person welcome. We need to put that, you know, put that person on a pedestal and help them. And, and the more you can grow your gym – the more opportunities you're going to have. Your gym's going to get bigger. There's going to be more classes. There's going to be more people to train with, uh, more uh, bringing when you have a, uh, a cookout, you know, so you get to eat more. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's just awesome. Yep. It, it's kind of interesting. I don't think we planned this, but this episode has segued towards, uh, the new student for sure. And you talked about your new buddy, your buddy that came in for the first time training and, um, coincidentally, I wrote an article here this last week about a student who was in class for his first time. Uh, and the title of the article is, uh, be a better instructor by not correcting your student. And it, this isn't necessarily geared towards the head instructor or, you know, a gym owner, but we all play a role in helping new students learn and progress. And I wanted to share an, uh, experience that I had in gym last uh oh two weeks ago I walked in a little bit late as is often he always does (laughs) especially when I'm at work man when I'm at work I'm tied up and I get in late and it so it's pretty common I I get in and the drills already started and I'll just stand and BS with the coach for a little bit and sometimes we'll uh comment on what's going on sometimes he'll like uh find an open spot and say here let me show you what we're doing whatever it's sort of an organic thing and um, that's kind of the way it goes. So I'm standing there talking to the coach and I'm watching the other students drill. And I noticed my friend Josh Billiot is drilling with a kid I haven't seen before. It turns out it's his very first class. So they're drilling. And then the coach, uh, after everybody gets done with their reps, the coach says, okay, let me show you a couple details. Uh, does a little, another little demo. And then, so now I'm looking for a group to work in with because I'm the odd man out. So I go over and I start training with Josh and this kid. And my thought is that I'll let Josh do the technique on me so that he can kind of keep explaining to the kid what's going on. So I go over and the first thing is uh, the kid executes the technique on me. And then I execute the technique on Josh and then Josh gets down and the kid, no, and then Josh executes the technique on this kid. And so Josh, uh, it's a, it's a guard pass starting from open guard. And Josh says, uh, so I'm going to take my Joe's foot and I'm going to stuff it between my legs just like you did. And then I'm going to squat on it and kill that leg. And then just like you put your hand on his hip, that's what I'm going to do too. 
I'm going to make sure, though, that my hip and my knee are connected so he can't get his leg in here and start working on some sort of a knee shield or half guard. And then I'm going to grab his sleeve the same way you did. I'm going to pull up. So every time Josh is offering this kid a little bit of instruction, but he's prefacing it with it, when you did it earlier, you did it right. And I thought, man, how much easier is it to take instruction when it's given to you that way? And I think that's great. But I thought what was more important is this kid's parents were there. He's only like 15. And I could imagine this kid got in the car and his dad said, what would you think? And I imagine this kid said, that was a blast. And I think I could be really good at that. And I think that's what we want all new students to go home feeling like after the first class. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, here's a 15-year-old kid who shows up at a school there before. And, you know, it's kind of scary, probably. Um, his parents bring him and his parents are probably checking out this school to see, you know, do I do I feel like this is going to be a good school for my kid? Do I want to pay the uh, fee each and every month? And so you get into class, they start showing some techniques and uh, then it's time to pair up. And this brand new kid gets paired up with a brown belt. Like, how awesome is that? You know, how awesome is Josh for working with him? Um, you know, I, I know sometimes, uh, you know, people came to get a workout in and really want to work on their game. But here's a elder to help this 15 year old kid out and then, uh, you know, help him. Um, I also like what you were talking about, you know, how there was no criticism. Everything was just praise. Um, I like that he was praising as he was teaching. You know, you were talking about. You know, I'm going to have my hand here. I'm going to stuff the leg just like you did. But he's given even more direction. Um, You know, he's saying just like you did. And and probably the kid didn't totally do it all right. And I'm just guessing, you know, Joe, you would know more. And you know how hard it is to do something exactly, you know, where your hand should be. Because your first time, really, that's why I'm putting my hand here. But here you got an accomplished brown belt, you know, praising you showing you in slow motion not rushing anything through you know hey your hand needs to be here this is why and walking you through everything um you know and like you said when that class was over that kid was probably pretty stoked he went back i bet he told all his kids at school you know all his buddies school has just started i bet not only will this kid sign up i bet you'll have a couple other kids from his class if they can talk their parents into uh taking them down for a, a test ride yeah, and so this was two weeks ago at the gym I train at when I'm at work. I went home for two weeks. I uh, went to the gym last night, and the kid was there. So uh, his first experience was good enough to at least get him sign up, and it looks like he's going to be regular, and we're happy to have him as part of the gym. <laughs> that is awesome. And, you know, that's why, you know, your school is so great. I mean, uh, uh, Fernando, you know, runs a great school. You got guys like Josh. Guys like Joe, Joe may show up late uh, most of the time and leave early, but, you know, here he is. He's helping the kid out, too. And, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, it's not just Josh. Joe, Joe's been training a long time. Joe's in there helping the 15-year-old. And, uh, I mean, how how great 15-year-old has a brown belt and a purple belt helping him out. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm just uh, – I'm just – I'm kind of speechless. I mean, that's such an awesome experience for that kid. And like I said, I I, I guarantee you, he's gonna he's gonna keep training. 
Yeah, I did have a little fun with him, though. After we drilled the technique, the coach was like, okay, guys, find a partner. I want to see some good matches tonight. Let's get some sparring in. And, of course, he looked a little hesitant at that point, and I walked up next to him, and I said, uh, what's about to happen next cannot be spoken of outside these walls. <laughs> and his mom was looking right at me. She kind of looked worried for a minute, and then she got it, and she laughed, and, and that made him laugh. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, Joe, the truth is what I heard is you went really hard right off the bat and really started spazzing, and he choked you out three or four times. Is that true, or is that just legend? Damn it, Gary! I thought you—I uh, thought you had my back, man. We weren't going to talk about this on the air. Well, I have had your back. You, <laughs> you posted uh, Joe's our artwork guy for the Facebook page, and uh, he posted a grill on another grill's back and said that was me. So I think that was uh, me and you grappling there, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure we could call that art, but um. <laughs> <laughs> he stole. Yeah. yeah so. But hey, speaking of that. Uh, Check BJJ Brick out on Facebook. Um, Joe puts a lot of articles, which this article will be going up on Facebook. Uh, he uh, posts memes. He posts, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, inspirational stuff. Um, so check our Facebook page out. Tell your friends about it. Um, on Facebook every Monday, uh, we share, you know, the uh, the episode that comes out. You know, share that with your buddy. Share that on your Facebook page. Check out our YouTube page. Um you know, uh, Byron's very active on the YouTube page. Yep. And uh, if Byron were here, he would have some names specifically of either new Patreon supporters or some that have been supporting us for a long time. Gary and I don't have those names, so we definitely would like to thank our Patreon supporters. It keeps the show going, helps us to make improvements, and it helps us to, off- to offer you guys a better product. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about how the Patreon people have kept us alive. Um you know, there was one time we got uh, hacked. Uh, somebody hacked our Facebook page and turned it into a porn page. Uh, and, you know, I actually thought that was kind of funny. But, I mean, that costs money to fix. Um, you know, Byron, myself, or Joe, we're not uh, uh, computer programmers. How to fix So, to hire somebody. Um, we've had BJD Brick events where we've flown out uh, Joe and we've flown out uh, other people to uh, come give seminars. We could not do that. Uh, without uh, you know, without our Patreon supporters, and uh, you know, you know, we we owe you guys a lot, and you know, not just the Patreon supporters, we we owe you Patreon guys big time. But everybody who listens to us, everybody who shares shares our page, you know, we we wholeheartedly appreciate it. We we started this thing uh, over six years ago, and I never thought we'd be here. When Byron asked me to do this, I thought we would uh, do it for maybe six months, and that would be it. Yep, and here we are. Um, man, speaking of BJJ Brick events, if you are listening to this and you are not following Professor Gina Franson, you need to be. She was one of the instructors at our last uh, event. She had a great seminar. But she's not as long as young as she looks, and she recently had a total hip replacement. And I'm telling you, within 10, 15 days, she was starting to do a little bit of shrimping, some technical stand-ups. I've seen recently that uh, she's been doing a little bit of drilling with her training partners. Man, by the time this uh, episode airs, she probably will be doing some light sparring. And it's a really inspiring uh 
journey that she's on and it and it is informative too i mean she's showing the right way to come back from a major um, hurdle and she's doing a great job so if you're not following her check her out yep follow uh, gina she's incredible and also too uh if you happen to be up in minnesota you know see if you can train with gina or uh bring her to your school for a seminar uh, joe and i we have been lucky enough to attend a seminar and uh you know, I can tell you it changed both our games. She's an incredible instructor and, and a BJJ practitioner. So uh, um, check her out. Absolutely. Well, Gary, it's been fun. Um, it went quick and smoothly without uh, Byron mumbling and bumbling along with us. So had a good time, man. You know, I, I do think this has been a much better episode, and I'm much more happier without Byron here. Yeah, um, I feel relaxed. Yeah. The pressure's off. I mean, yeah. If you guys don't know, Byron's kind of the guy who runs all this. Uh, you know, Joe and I. Joe, how long? Joe's been here a couple of years. I've been here since day one. And I can tell you, neither of us has ever got a paycheck. And uh, Byron, he's rough. He's, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, getting up that nerve to uh, leave that mean boss. And, you know, I've been trying to do it for a while. Maybe I'll just, but, well, uh, uh, the way to get started is quit talking about it and doing it and, you know, start my own podcast the real bjj brick yeah byron does some pretty crafty and clever editing man if the listener could hear the raw cut you know last week i stumbled a little bit on something i was saying and before i could correct it byron's like god dang it joe every time you and it's oh man it's just it's a lot of pressure so it was a great episode this week gary yeah, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, I have to take like a bottle of Pepto-Bismol because my stomach's hurting so bad. I'm so nervous. Um, you know, I know Byron's joked about my IBS, but I get it. <laughs> Being a, like today, I mean, I feel perfect. I'm happy. You know, I hope you can hear it in my voice. Uh, you know, really happy. And uh, I can tell you are the same, Joe. Yep. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, look forward to, well, I don't know if I look forward to next week. Byron will be back, but... Um, anyway, until then, guys, uh, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Train hard, train smart, get better. We'll see you on the mats. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, we didn't really trash him too bad. I was wondering <laughs> on uh, trashing him the whole time. <laughs> oh, but you got it in pretty good right there at the end. <laughs> uh, I loved how you uh, came out with the Area 51. I was like, I got to roll with that one a little. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's busy getting probed. So. <laughs>